You're listening to the James Faith in Jesus Work Series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. James chapter 5. This seems to be a topic that James is very passionate about. At our church, we tend toward expositional preaching, which is we take a book and we walk through the book one passage, one verse at a time. And, and part of the reason for that is that we want to make sure we're teaching the whole counsel of God, right? Not just getting on our soapboxes and our pet topics and, and constantly telling you what we think you need to hear rather than what God actually said. And that's really important. But what I think is kind of interesting is sometimes you get into a book and you're expeditionally going through the book and the same topic appears over and over and over again. And you think, this was James' pet topic, right? This was the thing that he keeps going back to. And that's a good thing. God inspired him to write about this on a number of occasions. And so I want to read a few verses for you to let you know what James has said so far about the rich and the poor. James chapter 1, verse 9, he wrote, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low. Because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but it withers the grass, the flower thereof falls, and the grace of the fashion of it perishes, so also that the rich man fade away in his ways. And, And basically what he's getting at there is that the present circumstances that you see don't tell the whole story, right? The rich man should not glory in his riches because they're going to pass and they're going to fade. And so really, if there's anybody rich, they should glory in that they've been made low, that they've understood their need for a savior, the need for grace, that they've been brought down. That's the reason for him to glory. And the poor can, can glory in the fact that he has been lifted up, hey, that, that though he might be poor in this world, he's got this inheritance with Christ. Then in James chapter 2, verse 1, he's back talking about it. He says, My brethren, have not the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with gold ring and goodly apparel, and there also come a man with poor, a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that wears the gay clothing, and sit, say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves, and have become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him? But you have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme the worthy name by which you are called? And here James is getting very practical in the church. He's saying this is what's happening. You have a rich guy show up in your church and you're showing him all the attention. You're giving him the best seat. You're making it as if you're just like, so excited that this guy's here, but when the poor guy walks in after him, you're sitting at the back, right? You're, you're, you're giving him no attention. You're making him feel unwanted, unloved. So this is so mixed up. It's, it's so switched around. Isn't it the poor, the rich in this world that are really oppressing you and persecuting you? Aren't they the ones that are, seem to be enemies of the gospel more often and the poor that God has chosen? And so what are you doing? See, he's, he's on this idea of the rich and the poor. And the truth is, If you read the book of James and these passages in particular in a place like Haiti, all of these verses are so encouraging to them, right? They really are because they they lift them away from their circumstances, away from what they can see, away from the poverty, the real poverty that they live in, and they show them the reality 
that they're rich if they're children of God, heirs of, of the kingdom. But when we read these verses in North America, sometimes we squeam a little. Sometimes they, they cause us to be like, oh, what is he saying? What does this mean for me? Is there some kind of call that we should just give up everything and be poor like everybody in Haiti? I mean, is that, how does this work? How does this fit in our lives? And so James seems to be passionate about this topic that riches do not equal God's blessing. In fact, they must be treated with a great deal of care in order to ensure they don't become a problem. Okay, now I'm not saying God is the giver of all gifts, but a lot of times when we think of how God has blessed us, we think far too often of the material. And when we think of God's blessing, please think about the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. Don't think today, don't think car, don't think house. Okay, think one, in, one with Christ, heirs of the kingdom. Think a child of the king that someday will go to heaven and be with him forever. That's the blessing. You get to walk with the Holy Spirit in you every single day with the God of heaven. That's the blessing. So, here he's passionate. Um, he lived in a land that lacked a middle class. Okay. People you were writing to weren't familiar with this idea of like, you have some people that are a little bit poor, you have some people that are a little bit rich, and most people just live in this, this middle ground. No, most people that he was writing to were either very, very poor or rich. It was just kind of how the society worked. You were either an owner and a master, and you had many people that were your slaves, many people that, that you were in charge of, or you were one of the slaves. That's, that was most of how this land worked. And so what I want you to do as we read this text is I want you to imagine that there's a man standing in the congregation who has lived for riches his entire life, and he's hearing this letter read publicly in the church. I almost thought about actually dressing up somebody here as like just somebody that's wearing tons of gold and, and flashy and look, looking like they're, they're so impressed with the riches, okay? But I want you to think about it because this is such a stinging rebuke. Like he tears into them. No, nothing held back. Okay, he saves the best for last year for sure. James chapter five, verse one. Go to now. In other words, listen up, pay attention. You rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, cries. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth. You have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he does not resist you. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if there was somebody here and it was clearly speaking directly at them? Well, I think as we read this text, the first thing we need to know is who is James writing to? Who is James writing to? 
I don't believe, and I think it's pretty clear here, that this is not a blanket condemnation of all rich people everywhere. And that's not what James is getting at. And we, we read the Bible, God makes it clear that many people are rich, and that's okay. In fact, throughout the Bible, God made many people rich. You think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon, even Job, right? Job was made rich by God, lost everything. Eventually, at the end of it all, he was rewarded with twice as much as he had before. Okay, so riches were never a problem for Job, him having them. Solomon was the richest man that ever lived. Those riches were given to him by God. Okay, so riches are not in of themselves evil. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, Paul says, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Okay? So he makes it clear there that if they're rich, it's not that they, they need to just give it all away or get rid of it all or not be rich, that riches are a problem. He says, just make sure that they're not, they're not boasting in their riches. Make sure they, they don't get this big head about what they have. Make sure that they're not trusting in those things rather than God. Instead, he says, trust in the living God. Okay, And this is one of those warnings, right? And we get them all throughout scripture. But one of the warnings for people who are rich, who have lots, is that make sure that you're not putting your trust in those things. Okay, Make sure you're trusting in the living God. And then it goes on and says, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. In other words, if, if he's giving you something, you're supposed to enjoy it. It's okay to enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the, the gifts that God has given you. Make sure you're not trusting them, loving them too much. So for the first time, here in this letter, I see unmistakable evidence that James may be swinging the weight of this condemnation toward unbelievers who sin in their gaining and spending of money. And now up to this point, I've kind of held that I think James is primarily writing to the believers in the church. And I, I'm not saying that this text here, these first six verses, they're, that they're not relevant to believers. They definitely are, and there are lessons we can learn. But I think when he's speaking about this group of people, it seems to me he's speaking about unbelievers outside the church, and there are three reasons for that. The first one is, here he didn't say anything about brothers and sisters. Okay? Not, that might not seem relevant, but he did in James 1, 9, 1.16, 2.1, 2.5, 2.14, 3.1, 3.10, 3.12, 4.11. I mean, throughout the book, he is constantly referring to everyone as brothers and sisters. Okay? He's also doing things while he's writing that even when he's condemning people, he's telling them that they should pray. Well, it would be weird to tell an unbeliever to pray about the things that he's telling them to pray about, but it would be very normal to tell a believer. Or he's telling them that they should be seeking for the will of God. Well, it's, it's a weird thing maybe to tell an unbeliever, but it would be very normal to tell a group of believers. But here, there's nothing like that. There's nothing that would be specifically for a Christian. The second thing, we find here that he speaks only of judgment, but not at all of mercy. Not even, I mean, there's no even a hope of mercy offered here. Only of judgment. Misery is coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted. Your clothing will be destroyed and eaten by moss. Your gold and silver are cankered and rusted. You have heaped treasures for the last days. The Lord of hosts, Lord of Sabaoth, knows how you have defrauded others. You have lived this life for pleasure, but it's been like you've been fattened up for the slaughter. This is pretty vivid imagery, isn't it? The, the picture of being f- like a cow being fattened for the slaughter. 
I always picture that, like this, this cow that thinks their whole life that they're just so blessed because their master feeds them as much as possible all the time. It's not a good deal for you, man. It's, it's not, it's not going to turn out well. And that's, that's just, just a picture, right? Fatten for the slaughter. He says, all of, all of these arguments that he gives, they seem very fitted for unbelievers. And the last thing I notice is that it says in verse 6 that they condemned and killed the just, which makes me think that the implication here is just that they're not the just. They're the ones condemning and killing the just. Okay? So for these reasons, I would treat the bulk of this condemnation toward unbelievers who are sinning in their gain and their spending of wealth. That's who I think it's, it's directed toward. So does that mean that we get to stop and eat the rest of the cookies? <laughs> no. There are a few things for us to learn here. Um, I'm actually hoping to get, get one point toward you today and maybe three more next week. Here are some things that I think he wants to do. The first thing I think he wants to do with this is to comfort suffering believers. Comfort suffering believers. Remember in, in chapter 2, verse 6, we just read this, that he says, Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you were called? What's happening already is that these people, this church, these churches, these believers, they're being oppressed, persecuted by the rich people in their society. They're being taken advantage of. Okay? They're some of the people whose cries will go to the Lord of hosts, who are being defrauded by the rich. And so... This is meant to comfort them. In fact, he says in verse 4, the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the lords of the Sabbath. In, in other words, God hears your cries. He knows your struggle. Okay? He knows what you're going through. And, and really, what an encouraging truth that is. To know that the unfairness of the world doesn't pass by God. Right? God doesn't look at the... I mean, we have um, four kids... And one of them, Spencer, is just obsessed with fairness, right? Yeah, I know. It's weird. But he notices when things aren't fair. I mean, obviously, he's usually noticing when he gets less than everyone else. But that's, it's really just how his mind works. Is, is it goes to what's fair, what's right, what's just. But when we look at this world, isn't it just like insanely unjust? Like, it just doesn't make sense. And I think even as Christians, sometimes we step back and go, God, what's going on here? Like, this doesn't make any sense that the people who are doing evil prosper so much that they get to enjoy so much. And then you have good people who work hard and they struggle and they suffer and they lose what they have. And, and like, what is up? Why? Why don't you just like fix it now? And, and part of the answer of all of that is just, this is the reality of living in a fallen world. That, that all of those things, all of the injustice of the world is supposed to remind us of the devastation of sin and how evil it is. If God fixed that, he would actually be proving himself to be a liar because sin doesn't really bring death and destruction and all those things. God hates sin so much because he knows how, the injustice of it. He knows how evil it is and, and how it destroys all of this world. But in this world, there is so much injustice. There's so much evil. And what this tells us is that the cries of those who have felt the injustice are heard by God. And not only are they heard by God, but someday he's planning to make it right. 
Like, this is going to get fixed, right? They will, they will someday answer for what they have done. You think of the poor who suffer because they, they have no other option, who are taken advantage of. I mean, you just go, think about the, the slavery that occurred, that is occurring still in parts of the world. You think about that. I mean, it's so unfair. But how encouraging is it to know that God hears and he will make right? Okay, that, that those things aren't just being forgotten. It's not just history to God. That all of those things get fixed somehow. That's an awesome thing. And so it's to comfort suffering believers. Hey, your father hears you. He knows what you're going through. He knows the struggle. It's okay. He hears your cry. He'll make it right. So the first one is to comfort suffering believers. The second is to warn curious believers. And what I mean by this is, I think he's directing this toward the unbelievers who are being foolish with their wealth, who who are gaining it in fraudulent ways, and who are spending it in just their own pleasure. It's all about them. But I know that as believers, sometimes we look at that and we see the the success of the world. We see the pleasure and the things that they get to enjoy. And we want a piece of it. We want a little bit. And this is just a really good reminder for us of of where they stand and where they're going and, and what that's all about. And keep your eyes focused on what's really important, right? Don't, don't be swayed. Don't be allured by those things. It's, it's all smoke and mirrors, right? It, I mean, it's not real. It doesn't last. It's all going to, someday, all of those things that they've heaped up for themselves, it's a witness against them. So it's no good. It doesn't help. I think it's to warn curious believers. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, it is possible to love money without having it. And it is possible to have it without loving it. And this is good for, for us because it doesn't matter who you are in this room and what your bank account looks like right now. There's no people who are immune from this temptation to love money and want money. And, and no, I mean, if you don't have money, you can still love it. And if you have money, it's possible to have it and really be good stewards of it. Really do the right thing with that. We are being warned here, not necessarily because we have placed our trust in riches, but because we will at times be tempted to. I think God wants to make sure that we're putting our trust in him. The final reason here, I think, is to teach us about the proper use of money. There are two ways to teach somebody something. The first way is to tell them what they should do. The second way is to tell them what they should not do. I'm, I'm sure you've all heard that everybody can be your example. Everybody can be your teacher. Some people will show you what you should do, and some people will show you what you should not do. And I think what James is doing is he's making abundantly clear what you should not do with money. But as he points out what is clearly sinful, he also helps us discern what is good. And so what I want to do now is just pick one. One of the four things that I think James is trying to teach us and look at the problem, look at the bad side, and then look at the good side. Okay, so James chapter 5 verse 1 says, Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. The idea of weep there is to wail out loud. The idea of howl is to shriek. So this is the opposite of what we expect rich men to be doing when they're thinking about their money. Okay, They don't weep and howl. They boast. They glory in. Um, they're so impressed with. It's the place that they get joy. In, and so they want to parade it around. But he says you should weep and howl for the miseries that shall come upon you. And the idea there is look beyond today. You might think 
that those riches are the thing that you can boast in. But let me tell you something. Those riches in the future, they're very problematic for you. So what do you mean, James? Well, in verse 2 he explains, Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver is cankered, the rust of them shall be a witness against you, shall eat your flesh as it were fire, you have heaped treasure together for the last days. He says your money and your wealth are corrupted. The word is sepo, and it's where we get our word septic from. It is rotted. It is putrefied. Okay? So we take these things and we start with your money. What is it? What good is it to you? What good is it to you the moment that you stand before God? What good is it to you the hours and days after the judgment seat? The years after the judgment seat? What good is it to you when you're in a, in a godless eternity in hell, what good is that money to you? Not at all. It is putrefied. It is corrupted. Your clothing is food for moths. No, I mean, this is really great because we can put it out there on these, on these other people. But really, so obsessed with clothes, have to look good, get the newest things, and yet, the clothing someday will be eaten by moss. How about your gold and silver? And I think gold and silver here is just this, this um, status, right? The wealth status of jewelry, a watch, a fancy car, all those things. They are cankered or corroded or rusted down. The word that's, that says that the rust um, is actually, can be translated venom. And so it's the idea of this, that it becomes this venom that will eat your flesh alive. What a terrifying picture that is. This is what James says it's going to do, right? The things that were once the apple of your eye, that swelled your pride, that brought you pleasure and joy, will one day be this standing reminder of how guilty you are, how deserving of punishment you are. They will one day cause you pain and misery. What did you do? You heaped piles and piles and piles of this stuff as your treasure for the last day. And what good is it for you now? And so the first problem that he makes abundantly clear is useless hoarding of money and possessions. That's a huge problem. This useless hoarding of money and possessions. And it happens all the time. People gather, they buy, they save, they hoard, take pleasure in, They build barns to store it all in. They rent storage containers because they just can't fit their stuff in. Now, there is a time and place for a storage container. I I know that that those things are necessary sometimes. You're moving or you got to put your stuff somewhere for a little while while you get it sorted out. But the number of storage containers in North America, it's insane. The amount of stuff that is sitting that people will not let go of, but they need to have still. They need to, to, to own it, to possess it. That's what he's talking about. What is that? Why are we useless hoarders? It doesn't make any sense. There are time for those things, but there's no, there, there's no good reason to have 10 cars in your garage. I can't think of one. What's that about? Well, if the Corvette breaks down, I have the Porsche. And if the Porsche breaks down, I have the Lamborghini. And if that breaks, you know, eventually get back down to the, insert your favorite one there. 
It's just so unnecessary. It's this useless hoarding. Um, we buy more and more and more. And even though you and I might be unable to do it on a large scale, sometimes we have our own little things that we just, we just stockpile, right? We have that, that pile of shoes that's way too big, right? We have sweatshirts. You can't find any place. I love hooded sweatshirts, you know? They're just fun. They're good to have, but you don't need 20 of them, or so I'm told. I think that, that we, it's just, it's just honestly, it's easy for us to get into this, like, I want to keep up with the Joneses. I, you know, they have this. I want this. I saw this. It's nice. I want to buy it. I feel it too. I'm not speaking tonight as one who's mastered this whole thing. I really haven't, but this is something that, that we're being reminded of here. Useless hoarding. It's, it's a problem. And sometimes I think we, we don't think we're that rich. Maybe because we still have a little bit of room in our closet. It's like, you have a closet. You have a closet like with lots of stuff in it. Our fridges might not be packed full. And they probably are packed full. Right? You probably need to go through it and throw some stuff out. You have a fridge. Like that's parts of the world, that's that's a crazy idea. You have a fridge that's got food in it. I, I remember going to Michelle and Travis's place when they first got married and moved to Chatham. And every time you opened their fridge, it was empty. And every time they would say oh, we just really got to go grocery shopping. (laughs) They didn't have money to go grocery shopping. (laughs) But they still had a fridge, right? And they still had an apartment. And they're still doing much better than most of the world, right? And I think what they end up doing, because they didn't have any money to go grocery shopping, they'd probably just go to Tim Hortons and grab something. So it was, I mean, they, and the truth is, I think it's a really good thing for young couples. Just so you know, I, I, I would highly recommend that all young couples go through a time where they have no money. And they, they really need to like buy food. We bought our bread from the dollar store for a while. That's a really good thing. It teaches you the value of those things. And it teaches you to, to be thankful. And if we it miss that, we can run into a lot of problems. And so this, this whole useless hoarding of money, we are rich. We do fine. Okay? We don't need more and more and more. And so let's be honest tonight. Are we hoarding our possessions? Do we have an unhealthy love? for or trust in money? Are we treating our money as stewards or as owners? Do you remember that everything you have is a gift from God, but it's not yours? It's not, I mean, it's not that you're ultimately the owner of it all. Ultimately, you've been allowed to be a steward of what's God's. And if we were to think of our stuff that way, I think it would really change the way that we view it. Right? doesn't mean that you're not allowed to enjoy it. God has given you that to steward it and to enjoy it. It means that ultimately it belongs to God and it's for his service. Are we finding our joy, our security in the give, in the gifts that we have, in the bank account that's full, in the RSP that's full, in the house that we own, in the stuff that we have, or is it in the giver? Uh, Natalie Grant has a song that I just heard recently, and it was, Help Me Want the Giver More Than the Giving. And I think that's a great a great thing to remember. We, we need to desire the giver and not so much the giving. And we get that mixed up way too often. Pastor Dressler told a story about Ian Cameron today, and it was a fantastic story about how for 18 months they struggled. 
and they really didn't have anything, and they had to look to God for strength, and that's that's the time that they grew. But Ian, after the service, shared with me that when he came to Canada, one of the things that he he said in his mind, I mean, he, he had this all planned out. He said, if I can make as much money here as, as I did there, I'll stay. Mistake. <laughs> it was a mistake. He was challenging God, and God said, nope. You're staying, and you're going to make nothing for 18 months. <laughs> but do you know what that is? I mean, Ian, the godly man that we know now, one day was clinging to those riches a little bit. Had this, this desire to have this lifestyle that, that you know he deserved, and that if he wasn't going to get it here, he was going to go back and get it there. And God to say, no. I mean, I've given you those things, and those are good gifts to use, but you don't need those things. Prestige. You don't need prestige. Okay? And it's something different for all of us. Some people's money, some people's clothes, some people it's cars, some people it's whatever. A lot of people it is it's prestige. It's it's the job. It's the way people look at you, the title that you have. But all of those things that we cling to, they don't matter. We need to go back to trusting our God. Okay? Trusting who's given those things. J.C. Ryle once again said, Money in truth, is the most unsatisfying of possessions. And these are the reasons he gives. Why is money unsatisfying? He says, it takes away some cares, but it brings with it quite as many cares as it takes away. There is trouble in the getting of it, anxiety in the keeping of it, temptations in the use of it, guilt in the abuse of it, sorrow in the losing of it, perplexing in the exposing of it. And I would add that there's responsibility in the giving of it. And so don't hold on to your stuff so tightly. It's not the source of your joy, God is. So here's the biblical principle. Plan for the future, but don't hoard for it. Plan for the future. I mean, it's in the Bible. In, we won't look at these verses, but in Proverbs 6, verse 6, we're reminded that the ant works very hard. Why does the ant work so hard? Because the ant knows that there's a harvest time and there's going to be a time where there's not a harvest. And they need to have something stored away so that they can still eat and provide for themselves during the time that there's not a harvest. So they work hard and they, they store those things. In 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2, we're told that the church is commanded to save money so that they can give. And so plan for giving. Plan for your future needs, yes. Plan for your giving. Okay, It'd be a great thing if we thought, you know what, someday I want to be able to give this much money. I'm going to start planning for that now. Someday I know that this need is coming in our church or for this missionary or for whatever it is. And I'm going to, I mean, don't all of us wish that we could give more? I hope so. What? Do you think if we started planning for it, we would, do, we would actually be in a position in the future where we could? I think so. So plan for giving. That's what they were told to do. Um, in Proverbs 22, verse 7, we're told um, that the borrow is borrower is servant to the lender. And so I think part of the principle there is plan for future expenses. Okay? If you're going to have to buy something in the future, it'd be really great if you didn't have to go to a borrower for it. If you could just buy it. And so plan for that. In Proverbs 27, verse 12, we learn to plan for future emergencies. Okay? A prudent man foresees evil, hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Plan for future emergencies. And so 
it is not a bad thing if you're able to, to plan for these things, plan for the future. Okay. God tells you to, that's, that's biblical wisdom. So the heart check tonight is, are you planning for the future or are you putting your trust in your riches? One is trusting God's wisdom and saying, God, you've told me to do this, so I'm going to do this, but I know it's you that gives. And the other is, it's all about me. I've got this. I've got my future covered. I'm set. Are you remaining thankful for your daily bread? This is a really hard thing for us North Americans to do. We just, cupboards are filled with it, so we're all set. People that have to ask for it every day, they're thankful when they get it. Are we thankful for our daily bread? I mean, do we go to God and say, God, thank you for what you've given us? We ought to do that. And make sure that we're not finding our joy or security in our riches. That's just so important. Go to the giver and not the gifts. I want to close with Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. It says, let your conversation, let your life be without covetousness. Without this desire to have everything that you don't have, to hoard up more and more for yourself, to have more and more. Let it be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Be content with the presence of God in your life. And you don't need all those other things. Let's pray.